Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Listen to tales of dastardly pirates and amazing innovators, catastrophic accidents and devious crimes. This podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception. So get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. As I don't believe in sanitising the facts of history, these episodes may contain information that some people find disturbing. Today's show talks about an aspect of the Victorian era, which was the period of Queen Victoria's reign, from the 20th of June 1837 until her death on the 22nd of January 1901. This period of time saw the invention of things we now take for granted, such as the telephone, motor car, typewriter, bicycle and moving film, which all totally changed the way that people lived worked and travelled. But today, we'll be concentrating on just one aspect of Victorian life, food. The Victorian era was rather an intriguing period of history, where Britain had expanded its territory throughout the world and became the largest, richest and most powerful empire in the world history. A quarter of the world's population lived in the empire, and Queen Victoria was even Empress of India. Today, though, we look back at this invasion of different territories with some disdain. Indigenous people were very often treated unfairly by the invading British, and tensions ran high. Over time, the empire broke down, and gradually, countries gained their independence again. The Victorian era also saw a boom in industry, with lots of people moving to cities to find work. And for the first time in world history, more people lived in cities than in the countryside, making city centres very cramped. Poor people lived in crowded slums or tenements, houses which were overcrowded, smelly and in bad repair. This changed the dynamics of the country immensely, as well as food standards. When Queen Victoria took the throne in 1837, politics, religion and family life were reformed throughout her 63-year reign. And as the times changed, so did the food that was placed on the table. It was the growth of the railway network that made a huge difference. It made it possible to transport food from the countryside to urban markets much more easily, as well as from other countries greatly improving the quality of food available there, such as onions, cabbage, leeks, carrots and turnips. The main fruits were apples in the winter and cherries in the summer. Still, there was no cure for most diseases, and despite such innovations, life expectancy remained very low. Rich and poor Victorians ate quite different food. Rich children would have eaten very well, with lots of choice. For poorer children, there would have been fewer options. Farmers tended to eat better with a diet of meat, vegetables and milk. Tinned meat 
was available from the 1860s, and at first it was mainly fat, with just a few chunks of meat. It was a cheaper option for poorer people, as it was less than half the price of ordinary meat. By the late 1800s, there was a wide range of tinned food available. All this made small producers try more innovative and unusual tactics to try and get more customers to eat their produce. Unfortunately, this didn't always work out. Word of the week. And this week, my friends, the word I give you is... Baltazar, which is an oversized wine bottle holding about 16 times the volume of a normal bottle. And this is one of the largest of all wine bottle sizes. The Baltazar is named after a 6th century king of Babylon mentioned in the Bible, which says... Balthazar the king made a great feast to the thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. From Daniel 5.1 King James Version. It's worth noting that Victorians liked to add things to their food to preserve them or improve the taste, making it another of the Victorian era dangers. Alcohol, bread cheese, pickled vegetables and sugary confections which are some of the items poisoned with such things as copper, sulfuric acid or lead. To stop these poisonings, numerous acts were passed between 1860 and 1879 that helped create safer foods, but it did not completely solve the problem. Let's start with bread. When basic staples like bread started to be produced cheaply and in large quantities for the new city dwellers, unscrupulous Victorian manufacturers seized on the opportunity to maximise profit by switching ingredients for cheaper substitutes that would add weight and bulk. Bread was adulterated with such things as plaster of Paris, ground bones, bean flour, chalk or alum, which is an aluminium-based compound, today used in detergents, but then it was used to make bread desirably whiter and heavier. It was also used in dyeing and the tanning industry. So you can imagine what that did to people. Not only did such additives lead to problems of malnutrition, but alum produced bowel problems and constipation or chronic diarrhea, which was often fatal for children. In 1872, Dr. Hassel, the pioneer investigator into food adulteration and the principal reformer in this vital area of health, demonstrated that half of the bread he examined had quite a bit of alum in it. If you thought bread was the only food being altered, then you'd be wrong. Tests on 20,000 milk samples in 1882 showed that a fifth had been adulterated, and much of this was done by the householders themselves. Boracic added was considered an antiseptic agent and a great food preservative because 
When applied to milk warm from the cow, it kept it sweet and lasted twice as long as milk not treated with it. A Professor Caldwell popularised boracic acid's use and drank milk with boracic acid in it. He claimed... No injury occurs to the milk in using one part boracic acid for one thousand of milk. Mrs Beaton, who was an English journalist, editor and writer, whose name was particularly associated with her first book, the 1861 work Mrs Beaton's Book of Household Management, told consumers that this was quite a harmless addition. But she was wrong. It turns out small amounts of boracic acid can cause nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain and diarrhoea. But worse, it was what boracic acid concealed that was particularly dangerous. Because, you see, before pasteurisation, milk very often contained bovine TB, which would flourish in the bacteria-friendly environment created by the substance. Bovine TB damages the internal organs and the bones of the spine, leading to severe spinal deformities. It is estimated that up to half a million children died from bovine TB from milk in the Victorian period. As late as 1877, the local government board found that approximately a quarter of the milk it examined contained excessive water or chalk, and 10% of all the butter, over 8% of the bread, and 50% of the gin had copper in them to improve the colour. Word on the street. Today we travel to Fairfax Street in BS1, named after Baron Thomas Fairfax, Commander-in-Chief of the Roundhead Troops during the Civil War, who captured nearby Bristol Castle in 1645. He approved of the trial of deposition of Charles I, but tried to prevent his execution. Five years later, he was one of the deputation that went to The Hague to invite Charles II back to England, but, disgusted with the riot and immorality of the Dutch court, he retired to his estates in Yorkshire on a vast pension and spent the rest of his life writing his memorials, psalms and poems. So far, we've talked about bread and milk, but can you believe confectionery was also tainted with additives? Some of the more deadly poisons were actually used in sweets and other confectionery. Chromate of lead created a deep yellow, but caused lead poisoning the more times it was ingested, with more serious results. To create a bright orange-red hue, red sulphurate of mercury, or vermilion, was used but was known to be a dangerous poison, while green sweets were usually coloured with verdigris or copper acetate, which was highly poisonous salt. In 1858, the use of poisons as additives in sweets became headline news. In Bradford, 20 people died and more than 200 others became ill after eating sweets that had been accidentally laced with arsenic during the making process, instead of a harmless draught which was usually plaster of Paris. A year later, another less well-known poisoning scandal hit the headlines, known as the case of the poisonous bath buns. 
on the 16th of December, 1859, six boys from a boarding school in Clifton, near Bristol, bought some bath buns from the shop of a confectioner named Farr, based in Redland. Later that afternoon, three of the boys went back and bought some more buns. The boys fell violently ill. With a horrible sickness and other symptoms of irritant poison. And that was within half an hour of eating the buns. The quick thinking of a surgeon, Mr Cross, in using emetics to empty their stomachs meant that five of the boys soon recovered. But for one of the boys, the poisoning proved almost fatal. He had been greedier than the others and had eaten three of the buns. He remained writhing in agony for a number of hours and fell into a state of collapse. The schoolboys were not the only people affected by this batch of bath buns. A publican called Robert May also bought some for himself and his brother, and they likewise suffered horrid tortures. This went on for at least nine hours. When he got better, May complained to the magistrate, but as he had not been poisoned outright, there was no case to answer. Had he died, though, a manslaughter case might have been put forward. The iniquity was discovered in this way. Numbers of persons residing at Redland and Clifton near Bristol, including six schoolboys, were seized with severe illness within half an hour after eating bath buns. The symptoms were those which follow the taking of irritant poisons into the stomach, but emetics have been promptly administered. Fatal consequences were prevented. The confectioner, being closely pressed, admitted that in desiring to give a rich appearance to his buns, he had coloured each of them with six grains of chrome yellow, which he procured of a neighbouring druggist. An initial investigation into the poisonous bath buns revealed that Farr regularly coloured the buns with chromate of lead, without being aware of its dangers. And at first, it was thought that this time he had carefully used too much. However, when the buns were analysed by Dr Frederick Griffin of the Bristol School of Chemistry, it was discovered that the colouring was, in fact, yellow sulphide of arsenic, in the proportion of six grains to each bun. So in this particular instant, it turned out that the druggist had mistakenly supplied Far with the sulphide of arsenic, a much more deadly poison than a slower-acting chromate of lead. And this was because the druggist's stock of sulphide in his shop was actually mislabeled. Regardless, no action was taken against either the confectioner or the druggist because the poisoning was accidental. Dr Griffin wrote to the Times, arguing that Many of the obscure, chronic and dyspeptic complaints now so prevalent are due to the systematic adulteration of articles of food with unwholesome or slowly poisonous materials. This was probably also the reason for large numbers of adverts in Victorian newspapers offering indigestion remedies. Now, it is said that the Duchess of Bedford, Anna Maria Russell, is single-handedly responsible for the popularity of afternoon tea in Britain. Anna, who was a lady-in-waiting for Queen Victoria, didn't like that time in the day when it was too early for dinner, but you still felt a little bit peckish. 
She described it as a sinking feeling that came around at about 5pm. So she started to ask for some tea, cake and bread and butter to be brought to her. And from that moment on, the idea of afternoon tea spread across Victorian Britain and is still quite a big deal now. At the time, India was the British Empire's crown jewel and a source of many luxury items, with tea leaves being the most popular. Before then, China had been the main supply, but now there was enough to accommodate the huge demand for the beverage. To increase the profit margins, unscrupulous suppliers used anything they could get their greedy hands on, including used tea leaves, turmeric, the leaves of other plants like hawthorn, elder and sloe, sand, dirt, rice, sulfate of lime which was also used in pest control, gypsum and Prussian blue. And it wasn't just the cheaper foods that were tainted to make them go further. Luxury items didn't escape this contamination process. The London County Country Medical Officer discovered, for example, the following in samples of ice cream. It had cocai, bakli, toroli, cotton fibre, lice, bedbugs, bugs' legs, fleas, straw, human hair and cat and dog hair. And you won't be surprised to find out that such contaminated ice cream caused diphtheria, scarlet fever, diarrhoea and enteric fever. As for meat, the Privy Council estimated in 1862 that one-fifth of butcher's meat in England and Wales came from animals which were considerably diseased or had died of pleuropneumonia and antacid or antacroid diseases. Basically, not fit for human consumption. Not all Victorian foods were dangerous. In fact, some of them, by our standards, were actually quite weird. For example, spinach ice cream was a thing, used as a sweet rather than a savoury course. And if you couldn't afford the better cuts of meat, you could always buy slink, which is the unborn calves or lambs of slaughtered animals, which were offered to customers. Another unusual dish was flour soup, which included water, flour, salt, butter and caraway seeds. Another recipe replaced the caraway seeds with nutmeg, which seems only marginally tastier. Once all the ingredients were thrown in, the soup was boiled and mixed until it had a smooth texture. And lastly, to go with your delicious meal, you could have egg wine. Yes, egg wine. Obviously you need an egg, which is then blended and stirred in with half a glass of water, a glass of sherry, sugar and nutmeg.
Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle. From the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. Back in the day facts. Okay, my friends, today we start with the 24th of September, 1657, which saw the first autopsy and coroner's jury verdict recorded in Maryland. Also on the 24th of September, but in 1957, Jailhouse Rock, the single was released by Elvis Presley. The 25th of September, 1875, saw Billy the Kid escape jail in Silver City, New Mexico, by climbing out of a chimney and becoming a fugitive. The 26th of September, 1580, Sir Francis Drake completes circumnavigation of the world, sailing into Plymouth aboard the Golden Hind. The 26th of September, 1665, saw the height of the Great Plague of London, as 7,165 people die throughout the previous week. That was when the call, Bring Out Your Dead, was heard throughout the streets of London from the drivers of the death carts. The University of Cambridge closed down during the outbreak, forcing a young Isaac Newton to continue his studies from home. During this time, he expanded significantly on his new idea about the laws of gravity, amongst other things. And by November, the outbreak started to taper off and the king returned in February the next year when it was considered safe enough. Disaster would strike London again in 1666, with much of it being destroyed in the Great Fire of London that September. On the 27th of September, 1825, George Stevenson's Locomotion No. 1 becomes the first steam locomotive to carry passengers on a public rail line on the Stockton and Darlington Railway in England. And lastly, on the 28th of September, 1542, explorer Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo discovers California at San Diego Bay, naming it San Miguel and claiming it for Spain. Well, I'm afraid, everyone, that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it as interesting as I did researching it. But I have to say a huge thank you to those who really brought the story to life. And this week we have Bradley Stoke Radio's very own Steve Shepard, as well as Tony Allen, Cerise Reed, and Sam Roberts. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. 
I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.